Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. We've got a big show for you coming up today. I've got quite a few people in the studio, which is a lot of fun. And we've got a few people online. We've also got uh, a researcher coming in from the Hudson Research Institute to talk about microbial resistance, which will be fun, and another from the University of Melbourne's Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences Faculty to talk about uh, frogs. Cool stuff, really cool stuff. In the studio with me is uh, Stacey. Good morning. Uh, I'm going to even turn your microphone on. So skilled am today. Good morning, Dr. Shane. <laughs> good to well see done. you. I had to take the week off last week. It was yeah, it freaked me out. You're out of practice. Yeah, I didn't know uh, what to do. Anyway, it's the first day I've taken off, I think, in, I don't know, it's got to be close to a decade, but not good. Dr. Ray's in the studio. Good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. I think we can spot you the one day off in 10 years, but don't <laughs> let it happen again for another well, 10. They docked my pay. <laughs> Well, um, <laughs> does that mean you have to pay them money at this point? Well, no, you know, you don't get the love. You don't get the love. Uh, on the line is Dr. Jen. Good morning, madam. Uh, good morning, sir. I, I was just going to do the opposite of, of Ray and tell you off and say what a slacky you were. I mean, come on, Shane, getting sick, really? Just toughen up. Yeah, the, well, you know. It happens. It happens. My, uh, my, you know, incredible consumption of pineapple didn't help me. And uh, we've got Gracie on the line from Texas. Good morning, Gracie. Or good afternoon yes, for you. Yes, good morning. Yes, good afternoon. How are you all? Good, good to see you again. <laughs> We're going to start off with some news, folks. Uh, Stacey, we might start with you, seeing as you're uh, draped in gold today, aren't you? Uh, I'm, I'm wearing a yellow jumper, yes. Yeah. Um, well, so there's been quite a lot of uh, science news this week about bugs and their sex life. So I thought I'd talk about um, the mating habits of German cockroaches. Okay. Okay. So um, it's quite a, a sweet little evolutionary tale about how cat cockroaches are adapting to human intervention. So published in Communications Biology earlier this week, researchers were looking at how um, yeah, cockroaches are adapting to um, you know, insecticides and things that we're putting out to try mm. to you know, um, uh, kill them essentially. But as we know, like cockroaches are attracted to food. Okay. So, and they're particularly attracted to sweet stuff. So okay. mm. glucose is what they're attracted to. Okay. So they're in our kitchens, nibbling away at our, um, all the, all the sweet goodies, but glucose also plays a really important role in their mating habits. So what happens is during courtship, the males offer the female cockroaches these sugar-rich secretions. So it's a way that they lure the female cockroaches into um, intercourse so, and it makes them sort of get into this suitable position for copulation. And uh, I love this, the paper, um, this is a really cute line in the paper. It says, mating success is maximised through the convergence of the quality of the male's nuptial secretions and the female's gustatory sensitivity to it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I don't know. So eloquent. Um, so essentially, if you've got you know really good quality uh, sugar-rich secretions, and you get together with um, a, a female cockroach that's got quite a sweet tooth, you're going to have pretty successful mating rates. Um, but humans have also capitalised on the cockroach's attraction to sweets. So commercial and um, you know household insecticides are laced with sugar to attract um, the cockroaches. But what re researchers have found that in response to the, these human interventions, cockroach populations have evolved to be averse to glucose. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it's really cool. That's a worry. Well, yeah, you would think so. Well, um, but yeah. does it mean they sort of go, go and don't... Mate. Well, don't mate. Don't go into our cupboards for glucose. Like, yeah. I don't want to hear that they're suddenly interested in meat. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. that's no good. Well, well, this is what the researchers wanted to look at. So mm. what effect does that glucose aversion have on their mating habits? Right. So, um, so now these glucose-averse cockroaches have signals, um, you know, they're 
their receptors where glucose is a deterrent. Um, so they avoid the bait and obviously avoid being scuttled. Um, and so this is a classic example of rapid evolution in response to uh, human intervention. But um, again, so they were concerned about these gifts from males um, no longer being appealing to the females. And so what they found was that compared to wild-type populations, um, these uh, population does fail in these um, glucose-averse populations. Um, and does that herald the end of, of, of cockroach populations? Never what know. do you reckon? Uh, they, they're pretty resilient. They are. And, you know, adaptive evolution is quite remarkable. Mm. Um, so sure enough, the glucose-averse males are compensating um, and they've got a range of other mechanisms to lure the female cockroaches into sex. Well. So they, um, you know, approach them more frequently and they have shorter copulation attempts. Um, and then interestingly, what's happening now is that their biochemical composition of those nuptial secretions is now changing so that they're more attractive to glucose-averse females. So, I mean... I guess the crux of the story is that bugs are much smarter than we are, yeah. as, as we know from everything yeah. that's been happening yeah. globally. And yeah. um, we've got to continually change in response to, to their, um, you know, their ways that they've been adapting. They will, they will outlast us, I have no doubt. Gracie, uh, what do you got over there in Texas? Yes. So this actually was an article that was published in Nature this week. So not necessarily in Texas, but I thought it was really interesting. Um, so this article is actually on the first sensor to track dopamine and serotonin neurochemicals within a mouse. Hmm. And so they actually implanted these sensors into the mouse brain and the colon. Um, and it actually doesn't disrupt any of the body's normal function, which is really miraculous. Um, and the article said that they tested this for nine days and that held up. Um, and researchers in general have made a lot of progress with uh, things like genetically engineered probes and neural interfaces and things like that for animals and humans. Um, but these actually can't detect specific neurotransmitters very well. And they usually interfere with the body by stimulating other tissues or the inflammatory system. And so this could actually be used to diagnose irritable bowel syndrome or look at the brain and the gut microbiome, um, and then also potentially be able to diagnose or remedy certain psychiatric disorders that kind of center around dopamine or serotonin uh, levels mm. being off. Yeah, that is so cool. I mean, these are things where half the time we have to t take guesses at uh, what they are, don't we? I mean, we, you know, we, we interpret it based on the symptoms a lot of the time, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So they're hoping that this could translate to humans eventually. Uh, first, they want to test it on larger animals than rats and then humans, mm. and then potentially even use that to modulate or predict neurotransmitter activity in order to potentially proactively diagnose psychiatric disorders, which yeah. would be really cool. Yeah, wild stuff. Thank you, Gracie. Dr. Ray, yeah. what do you got for us? Dr. Shane, I, uh, I saw something today and I just kind of went... Well, yesterday or the day before, I just went, wow, that's cool. How did they do that? Um, and it was in the area of microenvironments and microflows. And you go, oh, my gosh, what is that? Well, microflows or, or microenvironments are the ways we push liquids around and the uh, on, on a very small scale. And I'm talking the same type of flows that you might find in our capillaries, the ones very mm. tiny that go from the, the artery to the vein. So we're talking very small flows. And you think, okay, well, what is that used for? Well, that type of microenvironment or microflow is used in a lot of different applications, and we use it in science all the time. So microflows are important in electrophoresis, which is how we separate DNA. Microflows are important in PCR amplification, which has become popular and important as well. Um, and, and, and a lot of different things that, that we use in, in, in medical science about cell sorting. It's called it's 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 got a fancy name because it's called flow cytometry. Uh, in manipulations of cells, and 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 probably one of the big emerging fields was laboratory in a chip and. Di medical diagnostic assays on a, what's called a microfluidic device. So we need to push liquids around on the small scale. It's great because we can use small volumes of liquid, but basically our technology about pushing liquids around is syringe pumps still. Hmm. Yep. Now, they're very fancy syringe pumps, and it's unfair to say, oh, it's just a syringe pump. But the technology is still basically we're going to squeeze on, on a piece of hose and push liquid through a very yep. tiny tube. But so – if we look to – so what I saw this week was um, uh, a discovery led from Cornell where researchers had actually like, taken a much more inspired way from nature to push fluid around on a microfluidic device. Um, and they did it through electrically actuated artificial cilia. So cilia, which if you might remember, are the, the little micro protrusions on the outside of bacteria in high school. I still have memories of watching a paramecium move around under a microscope. 
Um, Different than amoebas, by the way. But so, and, and, and cilia, of course, are in the mucosal membranes in the back of our throat, and they help capture all those dirt particles and move them along in the mucosal lining. So we swallow them. That's kind of part of our immune system. And it's amazing. These are little microscopic protrusions, and, and their motion is correlated and thought and controlled. It's not like a bunch of Muppets at a concert waving their arms in their hair <laughs> randomly. It's odd that's my, that's my vision of random. But um, anyway, so. To be able to control or create something that's artificial, that not only can turn on when you put electricity on it, but that they were able to actually make patches of them to kind of lay them out as a grid so they can turn them on and off the same way you turn pixels off on a TV. So you can make these different flow patterns and you can control flow on on the scale of something is kind of 10 times the size of a bacterium. Hmm. And, and so – they were able to do this, and, and they did it using processes similar to make these small things that we use to make microchips. But they didn't stop there. Now, even knowing how to do this requires a lot of understanding of both biology and physics. But um, they want to make devices that are portable and lightweight, so they, they don't want – it's powered by electricity. Now, what stood apart about this discovery is they did it at very low voltages, so no other chemistry happens. But then they said, okay, how are we going to get a power source in there? Because it's not that portable if you've got to carry around a battery. So they were really clever. They then attached it to a CMOS sensor. Now, you might know CMOS sensors are used in very advanced cameras as image sensors. But what they also can do is if you shine light on them, they can generate power. And so they took a CMOS sensor, and as they put it, they can make lightweight devices now to move flow around in in lots of different potential microfluidic applications. Um, And and one of my favorite applications, by the way, is micropropulsion for micro-robots. That's actually a thing. (laughs) But um, under simple exposure to the sun. That's nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like that stuff. I did some microfluidic stuff years ago when I was actively researching, and I'm glad I had better eyesight back then. <laughs> Getting those little tubes in. It was always very, very tricky, um, but it was amazing stuff. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Mm, thanks, Ray. Dr. Jen. Dr. Shane, so I have this very clear memory um, from reasonably early in the pandemic of a photo from Helsinki Airport of dogs being used to sniff out Mm. COVID. I think it was about September, October 2020 maybe. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, that absolutely makes sense. It's quick. Dogs aren't invasive. You know, I'd done a story on breakfasts a few years earlier talking about how incredibly good dogs are at sniffing out cancer and all sorts of other diseases. Um, I went back to my notes and reminded myself, so humans have 6 million scent receptors. Dogs have 300 million scents. So, you know, a drop of liquid in in 20 Olympic swimming pools, a dog can detect it. So I was thinking just the other day, well, hang on, if that was September, October 2020, whenever it was, why haven't we seen more dogs at work sniffing out COVID? I I just sort of wondered, well, maybe it turns out they're not so good at it. Um, But this week I got my answer and I was very happy. So it was a uh, paper that was published in PLOS One this week. And unsurprisingly, it turns out that dogs are just as reliable uh, as laboratory tests are for sniffing out COVID-19. And I just wonder if maybe the studies just hadn't come out yet or maybe it's, you know, the dogs haven't been trained yet. But anyway, this study using sweat samples from 335 people using trained dogs and the dogs sniffed out 97% of COVID cases accurately, those that had been already identified by PCR. So 97% accuracy, that's pretty good. But the thing that I found even more fascinating was that there were also 31 people among 192 who later we found out had COVID-19 but were asymptomatic at the time Mm. and the dogs were 100% accurate with those ones. So dogs are much better than rats. (laughs) Dogs are better than rats. Had to be said. See what you did there. Or lateral flow tests as any UK listeners, you know. So as much as 48 hours before a person will test positive on a PCR, the dog is already picking up that case. So wow. it's it's pretty exciting, I reckon, because this is suggesting that dogs could be really good for mass screening situations. So you think about, you know, you want to go to a concert, you're going to wear your mask, but you're still nervous. There's a dog there at the gate um, who is sniffing everyone before they're allowed in. Airports, obviously. So these particular dogs were from um, French fire stations. 
which <laughs> I just love the idea, that yep. in France fire stations have their own dogs, um, and also from the Ministry of the Interior in the United Arab, Arab Emirates. So they were tr- dogs that had already been trained for other odour detection, and it took about three to six weeks, depending on their level of experience, to get them up to the job with COVID-19. So that's pretty quick. Mm. Um, and it turns out that the training just involves playtime. You reward them with tennis balls. So it's not exactly, you know, expensive. Um, and, and they were really good with odour samples, so they were using sweat samples from armpits, but it turned out that used face masks were just as accurate. Wow. So you don't yeah. even have to get a dog up close to a person. You can just let them sniff the mask. And, of course, so much faster. You know, rats, as inaccurate as they are in some situations, still take, what, 10, 12, 15 minutes, whereas with a dog it's a fraction of a second and you yep. get your answer. So dogs are just amazing yet again, and we, we should hand over a whole lot of work to them, I think. Yep, and the dog doesn't have to shove something right up your nose in a way that, you know, let's face it, none of us are happy about. No. We all do it, but, you know, it'll be, it'll be different at the airport, though. You know, when the dog comes and jumps on you these days, it's no longer, you know, I'm in big trouble. I've got a bag full, yeah, that's of, right. full of weed here. It's like, no, no, I just got COVID. I'm cool. You know, no need to no need to worry. Just give me a mask and put me in a little room somewhere. I'll be fine. That's great, Jen. And it's good to hear. there for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah that's no, right. it's great that the evidence is, is in now. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, the only problem we have now is a shortage of dogs. That's what the paper says. The paper ends by saying we just need more quality, you know, dogs that have had the sort of training that they need and who can cope with both a lab setting and a people setting because it actually is a different temperament for those two settings for the dogs. Yeah, incredible. Thanks, Dr. Jen. All right, folks, we're going to take a break for some music and when we come back we will be uh, speaking with our first guest today about antimicrobial resistance, something we're not going to want to hear about, but uh, it's important stuff and it's good to see where the research is going. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Jacqueline Pearson. Jacqueline is the group leader of the host pathogen interactions group at the Center for Innate Immunity and Infectious Diseases at the Hudson Institute for Medical Research. Welcome back, Jacqueline. It's been a while, but you've, you've been on this show before, haven't you? Yes, I have, Shane. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. So you know what we do. Yes. Easy. Um, now, this whole thing of microbial resistance, I think every time we talk about this, we start to freak out because the consequences of this are quite substantial. So give us a bit of an update on where we are with this at the moment, because I, I feel as though I've done this interview, you know, in some sense, many times, decades and decades and decades ago, and this is getting worse and worse as we go. But where are we at at the moment with, in terms of microbial resistance? Yes. So as far as looking at published research goes, there was a recent paper in mm. The Lancet that had a very detailed look at where we're at with antimicrobial resistance, but that they, were, they looked at it in 2019. So we, even, okay. we have that delay, you know, with getting yep. data through publishing. And so what they found was that there were 4.9 million deaths associated with antimicrobial resistance wow. in 2019 alone. And if you compare that to the, I think we're at around 5.8 million deaths with COVID-19. COVID, yep. That's pretty substantial. And I think, you know, at least 2.2 million of those were directly associated as a result of antimicrobial resistant infections. Are these these the sort of things that are most likely caught in hospital environments or are they ones caught anywhere? So we're looking at hospital acquired and also Mm -hmm. community acquired. So there's two very distinct definitions of antimicrobial resistant infections there. So community acquired and hospital acquired. Yep. And in the hospital, it's typically, you know, that's where antimicrobial resistance has, has really stemmed from. And in the community, we can get really nasty cases of um, resistant infections. But now mm. what we're seeing is that we're getting a crossover between the two. So we're getting the meeting of hospital-acquired infections and community-acquired infections. So you've got these really potent infections where yep. the bacteria can cause very serious disease that are, I guess, what you might call um, that they're, they're mingling. And mm. we're seeing antimicrobial resistance rising in these very, very, um, uh, these bacteria that can cause very serious infections. So you don't only have antimicrobial resistance, but you have very nasty infections. Yeah. And then you have very limited options to treat them, which is, this is where the big risk is. The more we see these very, very serious infections crossing over with antimicrobial resistant infections, that's where it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, super interesting. I mean, so... Explain to me how this works. So I've got a, a, a bacteria that's in a hospital. Yes. And you know, I understand the sort of evolution of that. So, you know, I start hitting with some antibiotics and part of it, 
manages to adapt and survive. Yes. How is it, though, that we find this all over the world? Like, why is it that that one site, um, or, or is it that it's happening independently all over the world? Like, what's, what's causing the spread of the resistance? Well, bacteria, as you know, they grow very quickly, mm. a lot faster than us. Yeah. So they can evolve extremely quickly. So as soon as you start seeing those mutations within the bacteria in any setting, let's just say in hospitals where you have a yep. lot of people coming in who are very vulnerable to getting the infections, they're immunocompromised, so their mm. infections will take off very quickly and then you need to treat them very quickly. Yep. So you're more likely to treat them with multiple antibiotics in order to get right. on top of these infections. And then when you're in close contact with it's not just the patients that are giving it to each other, it's the staff as well. Yeah. Yep. And then visitors that come in as well. So it's just this perfect um, environment for these bacteria to take off. Yeah, interesting. And, I mean, one of the things I've always been fascinated by of antibiotics and the use of them is that we, we've never actually created an antibiotic artificially, have we? We've found them all. Is that right? They're not only, they're, there is a lot of work going into creating new antibiotics. Yep. So we can take the basis of natural antibiotics yep. at the moment and then we can have a look at how we can synthesise ones that are slightly different and might mm -hmm. be more effective. And a great example of a lab that's doing that in Melbourne at the moment is Professor Jian Lee at Monash University. Okay. So you may have seen that they've discovered this new antibiotic, a new polymyxin. Mm. Um, that they're hoping, you know, will obviously be very useful for infections for a while, but whether that, you know, we start developing resistance to that is is problematic. Yeah, yeah. I suppose so, I suppose sooner or later. Yeah. You know, I mean, as you say, the number of generations that you see in a bacterial infection is extraordinary. Yes. So that evolution, you see it happening in real time, and yes. and sooner or later, you know, you yep. are going to see that kind of response. Yes. It, you know, so what? So what are you doing in your lab? I mean, what's what's the the way around this? How do we how do we deal this long longer term? Because it seems like something is always going to be on, on the horizon. For yes, us. that's right, Shane. So yeah, that's um, the question. I'm, I'm, that's what I was really excited about coming in mm. for. Because I'm actually not an expert on antimicrobial resistance right. per se. I am an I'm a microbiologist, and I work on the interface between what the bacteria does to our immune you know at, with our immune system. So right. how do we respond to these infections, um, and how do the bacteria manipulate? our immune responses. Mm. So we feel like we can take our expertise and look specifically at antimicrobial resistant bacteria. So for a long time, what we've done is we've taken these lab-adapted strains, yep. ones that have been in the freezer for 50 years, you know, right. where maybe yep. it was isolated from a cow, right, in, you right. know, and, and we've been using that to publish very high-impact papers saying this is how this bacteria causes disease right. and this is how our immune system responds. Um, but I just don't think that that's what we should be doing anymore. I think mm. we should be taking these clinical isolates because what we know is that the antimicrobial resistance genes are inserting in places where the bacteria had genes that were encoding for what we call virulence factors or factors that help cause disease. So the bacteria might be losing factors that it used to use to cause disease. Adding and that, new ones. Yeah, yep. or adding new ones. The interesting thing about taking away a factor that, that might, the bacteria might have used to cause disease before is that it can then become more immunologically silent. Mm. And that's what we have found with these particular types of antimicrobial resistant salmonella that we're looking at. So they can grow to very high numbers inside our cell and, and actually be very quiet immunologically. So we look at all right. these measures of immune responses and they're, they're what we might think of as being dampened, very quiet. And so, so we look inside the cells and we see massive numbers of bacteria. So we say, well, how is our, how is our immune system not recognising these bacteria? Why are they different from the ones that we are usually studying? And that's what we're trying to find. So we, we use genomics and we yep. use our phenotypic studies, so what we can you know actually physically see the bacteria doing. Um, in order to understand what these, how these are different, and when and when this bacteria is sort of developing that way, is it mm. is it something that it does in terms of getting the numbers before making the patient or the the organism symptomatic? Is this sort of like a a new strategy that it's adapted, or or are you symptomatic the whole time through that? Like, how does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. So, when we get a bacterial infection, we have to have enough of the bacteria in order to establish the infection, mm. and different bacteria. Are very, they're all different. Yep. So some bacteria you need 10 bacteria and some you'll right. need, you know, many, many, many thousands. Right. Um, so you, you can definitely – it will definitely be hiding as soon as it's established infection, and that might be before or after you're symptomatic. Yeah. Um, and it's probably likely helping it to establish infection and then become symptomatic 
um, mm. in the very early stages of infection. Yeah, but that's all stuff that we, we are trying to currently research. And yeah. it's very difficult because you need very good model systems to study this. And no one's really doing this globally. There are a few labs that are starting to look at this. And we hope to be one of those. Yeah. And what does that mean in terms of, in terms of studying those? As you say, like you, you've got the stock standard stuff you can buy off the shelf that's 50 years old that someone modified. But we know, you know, let's be fair, we know nature's better at this than we are. So, you know, obviously the new stuff that we're seeing in hospitals mm-hmm. in, in the actual environment yep. is going to be far more complicated than, than yep. the old stuff we've got. D- does that mean you're going and, and locating it and finding it? And, and presumably this stuff has to be stored in PC2 or other laboratories, which are you know, not everywhere. What, what does that look like? Yeah, so the bacterial pathogens that we work with are typically um, stored by reference laboratories mm-hmm. or any yep. you know microbiology la- laboratories that are associated with hospitals. So right. we have a number of r- reference laboratories in Melbourne that have, um, you know, many, many decades worth of these bacterial pathogens. So what that's really exciting because you kind of have a, a footprint um, in time of how they've changed. Mm. So they're, they're, they're essentially stocked down from when patients come in with these symptomatic infections and you can they might have been isolated from blood, faeces. Um, so you've got all that kind of information. But, yeah, those labs have um, you know massive stocks of these and you develop collaborations with those labs and you use them yeah. um, within your research. So that that's how we get access to those. And, and just finally, Jacqueline, I mean, the... You know, one of the things I've noticed over the last two decades is this incredible surge in interest in the utilisation of our immune system to do various things. So whether people are immune compromised and we're dealing with that, um, you know, autoimmune diseases, cancer treatments, yes. is is it possible within the future rather than sort of going down the antibiotic route, we'll go down the enhance our immune system route to actually you know, get get us to do the job rather than all these external yeah. factors. Yeah, it's great that you brought that up, Shane, because that is exactly what we're thinking. Right. So at the moment, um, uh, there is a lab um, within the Hudson Institute that is doing drug screens on uh, already drugs that have already been approved on antimicrobial resistant but well, mm. bacteria first of all. We just start with the bacteria to see whether we can identify parts of our immune system that might, you know, that we might be able to bolster. Right. in order to deal with these infections. That, that is exactly right. So I think it's going to be a combination of both. We're going to have to be more aware of how we're using antibiotics and be more responsible about that, as well as yeah, boosting our immune system in order to fight these infections. Yeah, look, it's yeah. fascinating stuff. I think you know, I've just been astounded by the advances, especially in cancer treatments and so yes. forth, that we've seen with you know, immunotherapy techniques and so forth. And it just our immune system is so bloody complicated. That's one of the problems, but it's also one of the, the benefits. And if we can sort of crack that to a bit and be able to control it to our benefit more yeah hopefully we can get around or at least you know i don't want to say get around this problem but maybe put it off for a few more decades you know but as you say almost five million people that's not an insignificant problem yes yeah and it is expected to rise substantially especially with covid and you know a lot of just giving antibiotics for people who are who are unwell yeah yeah Great work, Jacqueline. Keep it up. Um, look forward to hearing more about this. And I know you guys are doing some great work down there at the Hudson Institute. Thanks so much for chatting to us today. And um, no doubt we'll hear about this more in the future. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for having me. Folks, that was Dr. Jacqueline Pearson from the Hudson Institute for Medical Research talking about antimicrobial resistance and some of the ways in which we're going to have a crack at tackling this in the future. We're going to take a break for some music. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about frogs. Cool stuff. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Michaela Davidson. Michaela is a PhD student in the One Health Research Group in the Faculty of Veterinary and Agriculture Science, Agricultural Sciences, I think it should be, at the University of Melbourne. Hey, Mickey, how are you going? Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for coming on, even after you sat through one of my lectures during the week and you still were willing. I, that's nice. <laughs> Two, actually, if you count last year. Oh, last year. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, although they were similar, right? I, I agree there was some overlap, um, but I was asked to do the same thing, so <laughs> that's the way it goes. Now, you work in the area of frogs, and I think I saw some of your amazing frog pictures on Twitter, which is how we connected up some time ago. Yes. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but because I'm a bit of an arachnophobe, but I do recall some photo you put up of uh, something about um, – certain spiders keeping frogs as pets, symbiotic pets. Is that right? Yeah, this is one of my... Is this a nightmare head? (laughs) 
<laughs> no, this is one of my favourite frog facts. So there is a species of frog that has a mutualistic relationship with um, some tarantulas. And so they live in the burrow with spiders, eating the ants um, that would typically prey on the spider's eggs. And in uh, turn for that, the spider protects them and gives them a little bit of a place, warm, humid place to live. Um, and yet it's been shown that young spiders will even sometimes pick up these frogs in their mouths and spit them back out um, so they do not eat them. Um, we're not sure why, but yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, why? Because some horrific creator, you know, made this this shit, and they're all freaked out. This is uh, this, look. Even I the look on Stacey's face was pretty bad there. I'm really comfortable with the concept of a pet frog. I, I wanted to do yeah. that as a child, but for some reason, it didn't go over well with my parents. But. Why not with a spider too? Spider too, mix them up. Uh, amazing stuff. Uh, that is disturbing. Now, on the more, um, I guess, disturbing note and serious note though is the fact that frogs around the world are being attacked by um, quite a, a sort of devastating disease, which I'm not going to attempt to pronounce, but you will. Um, what is it called? This disease? Yes, we've done one here. So um, the disease is called Batrachochytrium dendrobatidis, wow. but um, for short, we call this um, chytrid. It's okay. much easier to pronounce. Yep. Um, and it is a fungal disease, which is actually the most deadly wildlife disease that has ever been recorded. Wow. And what, what is that doing in terms of frogs? Like, is it, is it attacking all frogs around the world in all places? Are there areas where we're not seeing it? What does that look like? Yeah, it is global. So the only place it is not is in Antarctica because mm. we don't have frogs in Antarctica or there's right. no frogs we're aware of that are in yep. Antarctica. Um, so it is worldwide um, and it does not discriminate between different species of frogs. So all frogs have pretty much been found to either be able to be infected or to be able to carry the fungus. Do, do we know where it's coming from? So the, at the stage, this has changed a couple of times, but at the moment, the consensus that it is that it originated in Asia um, and it's spread throughout the world through to um, pet trade. Um, so, yeah, um, frogs that were used for pregnancy tests was one mm. of the things um, and also food uh, frogs for consumption and frogs for pets. So it's us. Pretty we're, much. We're the cause. Yeah, yeah. And we're spreading it around. Yes. That's nice. It's always nice to know something new that humans are doing that is, you know, inspirational, world-leading. Um, and what does it do to the frogs? Like, what, what's the effect of them getting this disease? Yeah, so it's a fungus. Um, it does not hurt humans, which is great. So uh, we, we don't, can't get infected by it because we are too hot for um, it to grow on us. Um, but it infects keratin. And the unfortunate thing for frogs is that their uh, skin is covered in keratin. Um, right. And it actually causes a disruption <coughs> to the regular way that frogs um, turn over their skin. So they typically shed their skin and they eat mm. their skin. Um, but this causes disruption to that happens. And so because the frogs can't shed their skin um, and osmoregulate properly, because frogs um, uh, absorbs water through their skin, mm. yep. it actually causes a disruption in, in osmoregularity and actually leads to um, cardiac arrest in the frog. Oh, so it's yeah. not the fungus that kills the frog, but it's actually secondary. Right. It's like... Um I was going to say suffocation, but it's like stopping a shark from drawing in water through its gills. Yeah, just, pretty yeah. much. So it is quite a slow, um, painful and horrible death for the frogs. Wow. Um, so it is it is a horrible disease. Does it affect the frogs at all sort of stages through their life cycle or only the, the sort of older frogs? So it um, can only infect keratin. So um, frogs obviously have a bit of a unique life cycle compared to mm. us. Um, their first eggs, um, yep. they hatch from eggs. When they hatch uh, from eggs into tadpoles, the only place they have keratin is in their mouth parts. Mm. So they can get infected in their mouth parts, but it doesn't seem to do too much to tadpoles. Um, but when they metamorph, which is when they grow legs and they absorb their tail and they become little frogs, that is when the keratin becomes across their body all in their skin. And that is the most deadly life stage for frogs. And then throughout their whole adult life, when they've got keratin everywhere, it can infect them as well. Extraordinary. In terms of the sort of the biosphere and ecology and all of these things, where the frogs sit? Like if we lose all of our frogs, what is that going to do? Yeah, this is a great question. And someone asked me this early on in my PhD, you know, like, why do we need frogs? Why mm. are frogs important? Because um, I know, you know, a lot of us live in cities and we probably don't see frogs very mm. often. Um, but what they are is they're a bioindicator in environment. So because they're such a sensitive species, because they absorb a lot through their skin, they're often the, one of the first species to react if something changes in an environment. Yep. So if there's pollutants or, you know, the temperature changes or there's disease, they're often one of those first reactants to tell us that something's changing and something's mm. wrong. But they're also really important in the food web. They yep. are both predator and prey. Um, and there has been some interesting studies done overseas that have shown that when frogs decline, there is an increase in mosquito 
younger populations, and that's been incre- uh, correlated to an increase in um, malaria in some places. Wow. So, um, you know, not super relevant when you live in a city and you don't have frogs in your yeah. backyard, but, you know, for the environment in total, every time we lose something, it's losing something that's been there for hundreds, if not millions of years to keep yeah. the environment the way it is. Yeah, and you can't just pull a species out that's so iconic. And it's interesting, you know, when you look at certain species that only exist in certain places on the world, you know, like kangaroos in Australia, you know, like if you removed all the kangaroos in Australia, not that we want to do that, it's probably not going to affect North America that much, you know, we would say. But if you remove a species that is everywhere, there's something about that, you know, that says this is a necessary part of the ecology of the world that you can't just eliminate and not worry about. It's extraordinarily important. So now you're doing a PhD. How far in are you? I am. I'm uh, just over a year and a half. All right. So halfway. Yes, Can I say I halfway? Getting, to, getting to crunch time. <laughs> and and the, the, the goal of the PhD, obviously, is to look at how to deal with this particular disease. I mean, what's what's the approach? Like, what's the... How are you tackling this? Because it seems like something that's pretty you know, widespread and insidious. Yeah, it is. Um, one of the interesting things is, though, we've only really known about um, chytrid, so the fungus, um, since the early 90s. Um, mm. So it is quite relatively new discovered. Um, and a lot has been put um, in towards trying to manage and control the disease. So far for our wild populations, nothing has really worked. Um, so our lab and my PhD is trying to look at kind of the genetic um, mechanisms around disease resistance um, and if there was a way that we could breed frogs um, to be more resistant to disease that could then be re- um, released into the wild. And for that, we're using the amazing southern crobbery frog. Right. Now tell us about that frog because this is the one you, you – I mean, you very when you email me and stuff, you're very excited about this frog. I love I this that. frog. Yep. So what's, what's, what's so good about this frog? Oh, what isn't good about this frog? I mean, they are just the cutest little silliest frogs. I mean, you just look at them and how could you not love them? You know, they're about the size of a 20-cent piece. They're okay. bright yellow and black and they're just, they're just hilarious. I just love them so much. <laughs> are they like any? I mean, is, and this is—is is this a local frog to, to Australia? Yeah, so it is. It is native to Australia. It is only found in Mount Kosciuszko, so it has a range restricted um, wow. to a specific area. So it's not a Victorian frog, um, but it is an Australian frog, um, and it's yeah, very well known. You know, if you've been to the zoo, you've probably seen it. You might yeah. have even sat on the big, not yep. life-sized um, structure of a crabbery <laughs> frog at Melbourne Zoo. Um, but yeah. And and what's the sort of population scenario like? Because um, this this reminds me of the mountain pygmy possum, you know, sort of like these things are restricted in range to certain locations. Kosciuszko is obviously, you know, we don't have a lot of mountains that big, you know, in Australia, frankly. Um, what does that mean in terms of the the sort of the the numbers we have of this frog and its sustain, sustainability over longer term? Yeah, so unfortunately, the crabbery frog um, is critically endangered, right. um, and it is currently maintained through captive breeding. So there is amazing programs and amazing work being done um, with zoos and um, governments to breed these frogs. So they're held at quite a number of institutes across Australia, um, and they are being released back into the wild. Mm, They've cool. got um, beautiful disease-free um, exclosures um, that they're using, um, but the future does depend on work being done to try and mitigate um, chytridiomycosis in this in this frog. Yeah. Is it looking good? Hopefully. By the end of my PhD, yeah. it will be. <laughs> yeah. Look, it'll be a great thing to be able to put your hand up a few years down and say you contributed to um, sorting out this problem because we've been hearing about this now for a while, as, as, as you mentioned, and, yes. and it is devastating frogs all over the world. Just before you go, do we know how many species we've lost at this point? Yeah, so uh, across the world, it's estimated that about 90 species have gone extinct and 500 are in decline, um, but that could be a huge underestimate. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I suspect there's also a lot of frogs we just don't know about that are also being affected. So, yeah. Michaela, thanks so much for chatting about this. Um, I know there's, you know, there's a, a sort of very heavy load to this, but I also hear the excitement you have for this cute little frog. Love this frog. <laughs> it's not poisonous, is it? Is it a poisonous frog? Uh, so it can secrete an alkaloid, um, but it yeah. wouldn't do too much to us. Oh, that's a bummer. I like a frog that can take down a human, especially one the size of a 20-cent piece. Thanks so much for chatting. Good luck with the PhD. Uh, we'll, we'll get you back in when you're finished. How yeah, about that? Cool. Yeah, Thanks so much great. for having me. Folks, that's Michaela Davidson from the Faculty of Veterinary Science and Agricultural Sciences at the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a very short break for some station announcements. And when we come back, Gracie will be back on the line from Texas to do Part B of what I'm calling how she met her husband, which is really a story about embalming um, because her husband does that for a living. So cool stuff. You're listening to Einstein the Gago on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. 
Uh, you are listening to Triple R, folks. And uh, back on the line from us now, believe it or not, I managed to make all the technology work. Uh, Gracie's back there. So is Dr. Jen. Hey, Gracie. Yes, hello. Now, Good to be back. Now, this is part two of what I've been calling uh, How Gracie Met Her Husband, uh, which, of course, is a detailed story on embalming of human bodies. Um, but just let's give a quick recap of, um, of why I'm calling it um, that silly name, because this is how you, you met your, your husband. Yes, yes. So my husband is an embalmer and a funeral director at the university that I chose to attend for my PhD. So we met at the beginning of my PhD and now we've been married for two years. <laughs> he, so. was, he was trading bodies and you were buying Yes. Yeah. Basically, some of my research was on, uh, well, all of my research is on amputees, but some of it was on musculoskeletal changes and cadavers that had amputation. And so I basically gave him my list of inclusion criteria and he got to call me whenever he had a cadaver that met that criteria. So Nice. It's such a love story. Yeah. I, I just, it, it really tickles me. It does. It's great. Now, yeah, uh, it tickles us too. So. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Well, it's a good one, you know, because people come in with their stories, how they met, and you, you guys are going to come in and go, boring, here's one for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. I, I might actually just use it myself from now on. If I might can. as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Now, <laughs> sure. part, part two of, uh, of the embalming uh, sort of science, over to you. Yeah, so as a quick recap, we talked about this last time, but embalming is basically preserving a human body with chemicals, and the point is to delay decomposition. So the body will still eventually decompose. Estimates are around 100 years. Um, and we talked about kind of the journey of different chemicals and processes used for embalming last time. So we started with the ancient Egyptians, and then we talked about how Americans used arsenic in the 1860s. And then just a few years after that, we had formaldehyde, which is what we still use today, all the way back from 1867, still mm. using formaldehyde. Do you know what um, I learned? And, that that's, uh, that's really bad stuff for DNA, isn't it? Like uh, we, we, we yes. interviewed um, one of the researchers working on bringing back the Tasmanian tiger the other day. And one of the reasons that they've managed, or one of the ways they've managed to get the DNA they need, is because there must have been a day when the museum ran out of formaldehyde, and one of the one of the specimens was stored in alcohol instead, just by luck. Oh wow! Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, we, so we, it wouldn't it wouldn't have been preserved as well, I would think. Yeah, th- um, formaldehyde like apparently altered, breaks DNA down pretty badly, so yeah. that's what I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Gracie. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're fine. That's interesting. Um, yeah, so we talked about basically all the negative environmental effects uh, of arsenic and formaldehyde. So that plays in really well with what you just said. Um, it basically causes cancer and a lot of damage to the soil and water. Um, obviously, cancer for the people that are working with the body who is already deceased. Um, and uh, even with other methods like cremation, the burning produces a lot of CO2. And traditional burials produce a lot of methane gas from the body trying to break down anaerobically or without oxygen, basically, within that casket, Mm. especially with, like, metal caskets and things like that. And so a lot of these environmental effects have caused some people to consider green burials, what's called green burials or eco-friendly burials, and that's what we'll talk about today. Um, And so that basically just means that they use materials that are biodegradable and environmentally friendly by avoiding embalming fluids altogether and also trying to avoid using cement or metal coffin vaults. So you want something that's going to allow air into the, uh, the space where the body is to allow it to decompose, basically. Um, so what are some examples of this? So we have one of them that we're going to talk about um, out of the three or four that I have here is uh, woodland burials. Have you heard of this? It's basically like having your ashes scattered at the base of a tree or like burying your whole body underneath the tree. Yeah, cool. And the tree eats okay. you up. Yeah, basically, yeah, you've probably heard of something like this, maybe I, w- I would think. Um, yeah, so the, the problem with that is actually, I didn't know this, ashes actually don't decompose. So ashes are actually not great for plants because they have a lot of salt. Uh, they have a really high pH level and no micronutrients that the plant actually needs. Um, also, ashes have a lot of calcium from your bones. And so the calcium can actually limit uh, nitrogen in the area and kind of reduce photosynthesis, actually. And so the ashes could actually be bad for the plant. So I always, I guess in my head, I kind of thought of, you know, people scattering ashes as that being kind of good for the environment in some way. Um, And actually, it's not. Hmm. So that was really interesting uh, to learn. Um, And so some companies will sell biodegradable urns. Uh, or something with like specially prepared soil for planting uh, those uh, ashes. And they claim that the makeup of the soil that they 
they um, basically engineer kind of offsets those nutritional imbalances. And so some of these can even include seedlings so that the tree could actually grow out of the biodegradable urn and the special soil. Hmm. Um, So it actually could be better for the environment. Um, People can also use like paper or fiber urns instead, which are technically biodegradable. So they're made out of things like paper and bark and leaves or sand, or they dissolve in water. Um, Another really interesting one I came across uh, is called Eternal Reefs. So it's basically a company that uses cremated ashes to create like a little artificial reef ball um, that's basically added to a living coral reef, which helps restore a lot of the marine habitats by attracting like fish and other organisms. Wow. So I thought that one was really, really cool. So a dead person reef. We're going to build some yeah. dead person yeah, reef. Yeah, dead person reef. Essentially, yeah. It's, there's one in Florida is what I found out. So wow. I thought that was, that was pretty interesting and unique. Um, there's another one uh, called uh, Seletus Memorial Space Flights. So basically you can have your ashes sent to space. Now we're talking. Um, I don't I, – uh, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't super sold on the environmentally friendly aspect of that. Uh, I guess if the rocket's already going to space, you could just kind of tag along. Um, but Shane, that- Shane's so keen. I can see it on oh. your face, Shane. You're already plotting. <clears throat> well, you know, I mean, what would be better is if you actually, uh, you know, were going to space anyway and you just happened to die while you're on that trip. <laughs> yeah, and there then we they go. just, as I say, crack an airlock and off you go. <laughs> You know. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That would be the most environmentally <laughs> yeah. friendly scenario, right there. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Just got to stage it right. Yeah. You just got to time it right. Yes. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Another one uh, that we'll talk about is basically being melted down. Um, so it's a process called alkaline hydrolysis. Have you heard of this one? No, is, and this is different to cremation. Yes. Correct. Right. Um, it's kind of it's kind of the same principle, though. Basically, instead of being burned, they use a, a stainless steel drum and they fill it with hydrogen peroxide and water, and then they heat it to around ninety three degrees Celsius, or for my American friends, that would be two hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and so it's it's kind of similar to traditional cremation in a sense of uh, kind of the rest of your body decomposing, but you're still left with the bones. Right. And so the bones, just like cremation, you're also still left with the bones in that scenario too. Um, so the bones then have to be pulverized so that you have the ashes. Um, but it is more environmentally friendly than cremation for right. producing all of that CO2 into the environment. So, Stacey? Gracie, this sounds like an episode from Breaking Bad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I tweeted I tweeted the other day that uh, I was going to do this episode, and I was like, I'm probably on some sort of watch list somewhere yeah. with things that I've been googling, <laughs> yeah, uh, and looking up. So that yeah. was that was that was actually part of the plot of a podcast that I remember listening to years ago, and the whole punchline was, you know, that the, these nasty people managed to get rid of this whole population, and it turned out that that's how they'd done it, and it stayed with me. That I'm like, oh, that sounds quite uh, disturbing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and actually, I was reading that this is actually available. This process is legal in New South Wales. Oh, wow. Um, but it's it's still not legal in most places. So that was interesting. Yeah, so it's not legal to dispose of a yeah. body in a drum of acid in Victoria. That's unfortunate. If anyone finds out, if anyone finds out, that's yeah. the... Because yeah. <laughs> so... funerals cost Thanks, a lot. Sorry, you know, I can understand. People might want to, yeah. you know... <laughs> Well, in, in New South Wales, in New South Wales, they may have done it to greyhounds. Who knows? But uh... oh boy, yeah. All right. What else have we got, Gracie? Yeah, yeah. So the last one that I'll talk about is being freeze dried. Have y'all heard of this one? This was the one that I, I was, you know, was thinking this was the most out there out of all the options. But freeze dried. Um, so this one, yes. So this one is uh, literally having your body freeze dried. So it requires a custom machine, which it. It's probably proprietary because I couldn't find a lot of information about it online. I would imagine that there's a lot of energy that it takes to run. So I don't know exactly how environmentally friendly this option is in terms of the machinery. But um, basically, uh, this option hasn't been available on humans, but it's been tested in pigs, um, which are, as we know, are pretty anatomically similar to humans. But Mm. basically, the process is called premeshin. And it was an, invented by a Swedish uh, scientist back in, uh, I think, like the 2000s. And basically, you put the body in a custom machine that blasts it with liquid nitrogen. It's uh, negative 190 degrees Celsius. So again, for my American friends, it's really, really cold. So it's <laughs> minus 300 uh, Fahrenheit. I love, um, I, love the, for, then, I love that for the Australian listeners, you give a number. But for your American friends, it's, it's really, really cold. <laughs> 
It's just really cold. That's all you need to know. <laughs> Negative 300. I can't even imagine that number. So, yeah. um, but, and then, um, basically it's, uh, the machine kind of gives this kind of ultrasonic vibration, which uh, kind of breaks your body down into really tiny pieces. And then those tiny pieces are freeze dried, which removes a a really large amount of water. Um, And then mercury and other parts of the body, like metals or like uh, implants, metal implants, things like that are, uh, are taken out. And then the remains of your body are all kind of transferred into this biodegradable vessel Hmm. uh, and then buried. Wow. And so, um, yeah, and so the claim is that the buried remains would become soil within about 12 months. Again, this still hasn't been done, um, or I guess widely available in humans. I think they may have tested it in one or two humans at this point, um, but I couldn't find anything beyond like 2018. Very so cool. I'm not really sure, honestly, what has happened with this. Um, if anyone finds out, please tweet about it because I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but. Well, great stuff, Gracie. There's so many options for us, I can see. Um, none of them are really jumping out for me, personally. Uh, the space one, maybe, but I can see that would be very expensive for the family. Um, I'm not sure, you know, that's something we're going to want to pay for. But uh, I think we're just going to have to all live forever because all of these options are sounding pretty environmentally devastating. And um, I do I do kind of the freeze-dried one, maybe, you know, solar-powered. We could get that happening. That might be all right. Yes. Yeah, solar powered is an idea there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, one thing I didn't talk about with all of these is the cost, definitely. Mm. And so um, in America, the the cost for a funeral, I mean, I don't know what the starting price is, but I mean, it's it's pretty expensive. Uh, the reason my husband decided not to be a funeral director anymore is because he was tired of asking people for money right. um, and yeah. trying to be forced by the company to like sell them things that they don't actually need, right? Yeah. And try to guilt them into, oh, well, your dad would have wanted this or, you know, yeah. um, it just seems kind of a little dishonest all around. Yeah. Um, and so some of these options are, are pretty inexpensive. I saw that um, the one where you can basically plant yourself into a little podling and have yep. a tree go, grow out of it later, uh, that was between like 100 to $500 oh, is a, a price quote that I found online. So, right. And that's U.S. dollars. That's but, okay. Um, well, Gracie, yeah. we're out of time, but let's so, lock that one in for yeah. me. I like that. Yeah. 100 bucks. Um, yeah. yep. that's a good. That's a good investment. Get rid of me nice and cheap. Yes. Rather yes. than what my family's probably going to do, which is bury me, bury me in the backyard. So yeah, I'll go or push you out pot. of an airlock. Yeah, oh, the airlock thing's yeah. great. Thanks so much, Gracie. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Good to hear your backstory there of uh, of you and your husband and and all things uh, interesting scientifically about uh, embalming and getting rid of bodies. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dr. Jen. Good to have you online. And then you saw the quarantining there. Lovely to see you uh, at least online, Dr. Shane. Thank you. Uh, good to see you, Stacey, in the studio, and you, Dr. Ray. Great to see you both. Folks, thanks so much for listening into Einstein the Go-Go. We're going to hand over to Eat It. Have a great Sunday. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein the Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.